Welcome to the Alliance Bible Church Podcast. We exist to be a healthy community, living and sharing the good news of Jesus with neighbors and nations. Well, let me, let me pray for us and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning, for calling us uh, out with your gospel, Lord, to bringing us to a place of redemption in our lives, to bringing us into redemptive community, Lord, for giving us purpose, hope, and ultimately heaven with you forever. We thank you for all those things. Let our worship, the words on our lips, our praises, and your word all point to you and your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 Welcome. Welcome. How are you guys doing today? Why is it this section gets coffee and everybody else, it's like not so much. It's like right here every week. I can, I can pretty much bet on who's, who's in town. What's that? Oh, it's the, my bad, my bad. Who knew? Who knew? So it's interesting. We've, uh, we've been working through the Old Testament the last couple weeks and, uh, you know, as I'm out in the community and as I'm doing life, oftentimes I'll bump into people that think that um, somehow, especially the Old Testament, but kind of the Bible in general, like, like it's really irrelevant. Like people have questions about, you know, does the Bible realistically address life issues that we face today? And even if it does somehow address the life issues that we face today, is it like relevant in the way that it deals with culture. So just a, an interesting side note, we're dealing with one of the oldest books of the Bible, arguably the oldest book of the Bible, Genesis. Um, and it's interesting that in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, just a few things that Genesis addresses are the nuances of gender, the breakdown of the nuclear marriage, who is the initiator of morality, the authenticity of scripture, the roots of relational challenge, and the identity of God. Those seem like they're fairly front page news stories today. Like if you were to turn on CNN or pick up the Seattle Times, you would run into a lot of those same stories or a lot of those same issues we find in the book of Genesis. The other question I get asked is, well, I mean, even if the Bible deals with those things. Is it done so in a way that's culturally relevant that people can connect with today? Um, and I'll make a relation to the movie Star Wars. Who here seen? Who here hasn't seen Star Wars? Is there anybody who hasn't seen Star Wars? Couple. It's it's a cool film. It's it it's an epic. I, I mean, it's both a cult classic and a major blockbuster hit. Like I'd recommend it. It's worth it's worth your time. It's uh. And it's like PG, too, so nothing to be scared of. <laughs> you ever notice in the beginning of Star Wars when the tunes play, dun dun da and there's like a couple blocks of text that roll out? Yeah. They like introduce the story and the galaxy and the plight between good and evil. And then you jump right into the action. You guys ever notice that about Genesis? It's in, or about Star Wars? <laughs> Sorry, I just, spoiler alert, right? It's interesting, the guy who wrote Star Wars went and studied religions 
like the Bible and other ancient Near East religions. And he opened his movie with a couple blocks of text and a jump into the battle for the universe, right? This epic fight between good and evil. And that's kind of how the book of Genesis starts. We're going to be in Genesis 3 today, starting with verse 1. But I just kind of wanted to give you that introduction because I, I feel like the Bible today is just as applicable as it was when Jesus walked the earth and just as applicable as it was when they wrote the book of Genesis. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord the God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you will die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then both of their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. The question we're going to ask ourselves, both through the eyes of cultural relevance and through the eyes of the, the life issues related to in this passage are, what happens when mankind makes himself the center of the story? One of the first things we encounter is that when man makes himself the center of the story, he questions God's word. To go back to verse 1, now the ser- it says, The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God has made. Now, I got I to be frank with you. When I was growing up, my mom taught me a bunch of life lessons, right? They included, like, come home when the lights go on, don't get in the car with strangers, um, What's that? Don't run with scissors. Don't get in the car with someone you don't know. She never, ever mentioned, don't talk to demonic snakes. (laughs) I feel really let down by this. In fact, we're going to have a conversation when I go home for Thanksgiving, all right? Like, I feel like that one was was blatantly missed. (laughs) But in the garden, we see not only is there this talking animal... But the first thing we get right off the bat is this animal, this talking snake, is going to question the word of God. And he goes on to say, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The first attempt to corrupt God is an, authentic, is a, an attempt to corrupt the authenticity of his word. We live in a world today that tries desperately to distort God's message or, shun away, or give us a distortion as a fake that we can then shun away. Our entertainment venues cartoonize what Christians are supposed to look like and then make it easy for us to be dismissed and for God's word to be dismissed. 
As an interesting theological aside, there comes up this question, who is the serpent, right? Was this solely an animal? Nowadays, we ask the question, was it Satan incarnate? Or was it some animal that was kind, that, that cohabitated with Satan or some demonic force to come tempt Eve? I have a couple verses that I could give to you. Revelation 12.9 would be one of them where the Bible talks about Satan as a great serpent. Um, at, the, at the end of the day, I don't think that's inherently uh, at the central issue of what this passage is about, but it's an interesting theological aside. Eve gives us an emotional answer. You know, it could be she wanted to stand up for God's word. It could be that she was trying to defend God's word because she says, we may, eat of the, we may eat of the fruit of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, nor shall you touch it, lest you will die. It's interesting to note, nowhere in scripture does it actually say that God said, you shall not touch the fruit. It's only recorded that God said, you shall not eat the fruit. It's interesting, even with the first rule that God ever made, the only rule at that time God had ever handed to humankind, somehow we took that rule and became legalists with it, right? <laughs> God said, don't eat the fruit. Don't touch it. Don't look at it. You, <laughs> you, you got to be careful. Don't even walk to that part of the garden, right? There's five different layers that we can add on top of God's rule sometimes, which make it not God's rules, which make it our rules. In some ways, Eve was behaving quite like a cultural Christian would do today. She's defending the morality that her God puts forward. Someone who has, like an example today would be someone with a Judeo-Christian set of values, but as we'll see, her conviction in her set of values is actually stronger than her conviction in her own God. The serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die for God knows that when you eat of this, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Bonhoeffer called this the first conversation about God. Think about that. Prior to this, Adam and Eve walked with God. It said he would join them in the cool of the day and walk through the garden. They talked with God. They had intimate relationships with God. Probably got to ask him questions, right? Imagine God walking you through the garden, giving you instructions on botany, biology, how to grow trees better, how to tend a garden. Amazing. But there was no need to actually consider who God was or or what God's purposes were. I mean, it was like when you were a little kid looking at your parents. You didn't necessarily consider how hard their workday was. You just wanted to play. You just wanted them to give you food. You just wanted to be able to stay out late, go out with your friends. You really didn't have that consideration about their lives, their personhood, what they were about. This is the first time in the Bible that it's recorded where people start to think about God. And if you don't mind my laying this forward, that's, they make some very poor theological assumptions. My second point, when you make yourself the center of the story, you'll start to doubt God's goodness. The trap here is laid. I don't know about you, but 
I think there's a lot better things that Eve could have done than sat in the garden and argue with this snake. In fact, James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 says, Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, for you are double-minded. In going from relator to theologian, we're going to see some of the poorest theology recorded in this section of the Bible or maybe in Scripture. It, and it's fascinating, too, this double-mindedness of Eve. Here she is. She starts off defending God's rules, but when God's heart is called into question, she has no defense for it. One pastor I know said it this way, my sin looks so much worse on other people than it looks on me, <laughs> right? Eve would have been the first one to tell Adam, no, Eve was the first one to tell the snake, don't eat the apple. Eve would have told Adam, don't eat the apple. But as we know, what's she going to go do? She's going to go eat the apple, that question comes up today too, right? If God is a good and a righteous God, he'll allow me to do what I want. If God is a good and a righteous God, he'll want me to be fulfilled. If God is a good and a righteous God, why would he withhold things from me that are good? It says she could look at the fruit and see it was good. She used that to doubt God's character. <clears throat> it's interesting, I have an 11-year-old niece and she's starting to develop her own ideas about spirituality. She uses phrases like, well, my God would this. Well, my God would that, right? She's a product of her environment. She hears these things at school. <clears throat> now, it's interesting. My niece is barely entering junior high school. If I were to take a list of college degrees and starting with art, moving to astro astrophysics, astronomy and go all the way down to zoology and pick every single major and ask her, which one of these uh, disciplines have you mastered, much less even taken a single course? She would not have a single unit to her name, even in an undergraduate college classroom. She lives in a house she neither built nor paid for, eats food from other countries she has never visited that arrive here on complex transit lines crossing oceans that she can't even name, much less navigate. Despite never knowing a, <clears throat> maybe more than a couple elements on the periodic table, her food arrives in packages designed by chemists in labs. She has yet to even attempt to understand the deepest mysteries of the universe, like dark matter, the human condition, or how to tie a fisherman's knot when your hands are wet. Yet despite all the limitless complexity around her, none of which she even recognizes or understands, she feels qualified enough to dictate how God would act to her and the rest of mankind. The depth of her overconfidence is staggering. I'd love to tell her that one day she's older and has, will have an intimacy with God, perfect relationship with him, and then she'll be able to dictate terms, kind of like Adam and Eve. It doesn't really work that way. In fact, it's interesting because this conversation with her reminded me of times when I would watch her play Barbie. 
She would tell me, oh, Barbie's wants this. Barbie's going to get that. Ken wants this. Ken's going to get that. And I mean, one of the things I want to tell her is there is no Ken in the world who wants what you think he wants right now. Like that's okay. First of all, right, right off the table for the conversation. Ken is self-centered beyond what you can even imagine. Okay. But that's a whole nother aside. But it's interesting watching her playing God with these little figureheads. And it's kind of an interesting theological aside, because I think that's sometimes what we can do to our God. God would want this for me. God would want that for me. He's going to give me this. He's going to give me that. In fact, that's such a close relationship. That's to how people worship God. There's literally peoples in the world who still to this day build figurines to represent God and come to God with specific requests like that, right? The God of money wants to give me money. The God of procreation wants to give me procreation. The God of success wants to give me success. I think Hinduism has over 300 million gods. And yet, although we have one and he's triune and we look at him as the creator of the universe, I feel like sometimes we walk around with him like a little figurine telling him what he wants to give us. At least that's the story of how Genesis portrays us. God would want these things for me because we say things like this. God helps those who help themselves. God wants me to be happy. I'm a good person. What's a little mistake going to do? God wants me to get the things that I deserve. Hope not. If God is so good, why do I hurt right now? If God loves me, why can't I just have what I want? Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took fruit and ate. If Eve was alive today, she might have a t-shirt that says, get your laws off my stomach. But this really isn't about what goes in your stomach. Mark 7, verse 18 through 23, Jesus said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and then is expelled? And then Jesus said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the person. See, this story isn't about God bludgeoning mankind over his choice of fruit basket, all right? This story is about the insurrection of man from a devoted and loving fatherly God and the destruction of the most just and outstanding circumstances that ever existed. 
In the, in the New Testament, Paul talks about rebellious unbelievers using this description. Romans 1.25, he says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. This first happened in the garden. I mean, think about this. For all this stuff I complain, God, I would really worship better if I had this. Okay, Garden of Eden. Circumstances are perfect, right? There's no sin. There's no bad weather. You're hanging out naked. (laughs) All right? There's nobody nagging you. There's no, like, bad work that you have to do. There's no sin. There's no fighting. All there is is one thing, right? All there is is one thing to complain about. Guess what we found to complain about? One thing. I would love to put this on Adam and Eve, think when I get to heaven, I'm going to have some words with Adam about how he messed this whole thing up. But let's be real. Adam's kind of a picture of all of us, isn't he? Giving every good thing in the kingdom and being warned against evil and yet still rebelling based on wanting to wrestle control back from God. One commentary put it like this, the evil that involves mankind is the product of our own choice, expressed as a rebellion against God, and has affected us so totally that there is now nothing we can do to restore ourselves or regain that position of privilege and responsibility that we lost through the rebellion. The point here is that God is aware of our intentions. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Genesis goes on and says, Eve also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam is right there with her, and he eats as well. Now, one thing I'll give them, there there would be a seduction to living in the garden, to never having to critically analyze anything you do, right? Everything is all right. You can go on autopilot all day. All the thoughts that come out of your mind except for one are pure. All the things that you can do in life are pure. There's nothing you really need to heavily engage in terms of critical self-analysis and how what you're doing is affecting others because it's perfect. You're not negatively affecting others. Adam gets a little on autopilot is probably his first step towards sin. Not analyzing, hey, I'm talking to a demonic snake, like what's your, what's your motives in this, Mr. Snake? We can kind of get on the same, a similar path at church, right? Being on autopilot. Church should be someplace that's safe for us to come. It should be someplace where we can relax and let down our guard. It should be someplace where we can come to and maybe leave some of the worries of yesterday behind. But it should be also a place where we're aware of how we welcome and love on others. It should also be a place where we take an inventory of ourselves 
and how we can, we can better affect the community, better love one another, and better serve our God. In Eve's case, she put her pursuit of pleasure above God's sovereignty. And the appeal to sin is the one of prideful autonomy. We can import things onto God and use them kind of like Eve did to rebel against God. Maybe today Eve would be a perfectionist who feels that God's expectations are so high that she wants to throw her hands in the air and give up on him despite the fact that it's grace that he's offering. Maybe today, Adam would be a guy with a checkered past who thinks that if I came to church, they're not going to accept me. So he doesn't go to church thinking they wouldn't accept him here. He's pre-made up an argument about God, and he's going to use that as a way to hide from and separate himself from God. So they do their own thing. Verse 7, it says, their eyes are opened. I most certainly believe their eyes are opened. I spent a total of about 15 years as a paramedic, firefighter, responding to various emergencies. And I will say this, I come across people all the time whose eyes are opened. All right, They, they tried a new thing, they went for a new experience, and they learned something. It's... By the time that I'm there, it's something they wish they didn't learn with consequences they wished they'd never received. The verse goes on, it says, they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. See, when the story becomes all about us, we wind up with distorted relationships we wind up with distorted relationships. God didn't make the garden so that, I don't know if you guys have seen a fig leaf, they're not comfortable, right? This isn't like a soft, fluffy, like palm frond or something like, there's pokey edges in that thing, okay? Fig leaf loincloth, not a good day. (laughs) That thing chafes. This has gotta be like the saddest honeymoon I could ever imagine. I mean, imagine this. You're living in perfection. You got sent away on a tropical vacation. And within a few verses, you've destroyed all of creation. God himself grieving. Some, in, some levels of intimacy in your relationship lost forever. Man and wife hiding from each other. Struck with stupid because they're hiding in the bushes. You think you're going to hide from God, from God in the bushes? left with fig leaves as their attempt for righteousness. Today, I feel like we have some of the same habits. It seems more than ever that we can hide from each other with fig leaves. Maybe a fig leaf is a veil of digital autonomy afforded to us by the internet. Maybe a fig leaf is superficial relations that are personal connections throughout the week have. Maybe fig leaves are our hurts that we use as shields to keep us from engaging in other relationships that may be painful. In verse 8, it says, Adam and Eve then heard 
the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid himself from the presence of the Lord amongst the trees. You imagine in, in times prior what a triumph that would be? The Lord God walking through the cool of the garden. The Lord God there to ask questions to. The Lord God there to show up and support you bodily, to give you a hug. Like what a triumph that would have been in, in prior times to sit at his feet, to see his person, to hear his wisdom. But today wouldn't be a wonderful day. See, meeting the king is only a good time when you're not wrestling for his throne. God's merciful presence, his glory and grace had been twisted to become an intrusion and in light of their sin, Adam and Eve had distorted their relationship and view of God. Is there some place in your life where you don't want God's intrusion? Maybe something that you've walked to that's through that's uncomfortable enough, anxious enough, tucked away enough, where God's presence, kind of like that day in the garden, feels more like an intrusion than a welcome of a loving father. Is there some place in your life you kind of like want to be winging it? To leave your Christianity at the door? Look, I'm not saying you should be a gaudy, overbearing Christian everywhere you go. In fact, I would recommend against that. But Adam and Eve got to where they were by being holed out on God in one area of their life. I would suggest for most of us, we probably got more than one. And that holdout, it cost them dearly. This passage is a warning to look at our hearts, not just for places of depraved indulgence, but as an awareness of our lives where God's presence might be considered an intrusion. Verse 9 goes on to say, And the Lord God called man to him and said, Where are you? Man said, I've, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Because God is a gracious and a loving God, Adam knew, based on the righteousness of God's character, he wasn't going to overlook this. That absolute freedom, we would come to find out, is not freedom at all. It actually resulted in chaos. That God's boundary put there to protect them, once broken, destroyed the freedom that they had had before. Kind of a metaphor I was thinking about is traffic laws. Right? It's always a... It's a pain in the neck. If you're out on TV highway and you see little blue lights behind you, like, all right, that's a bummer. You know what would be really a bummer? Not having any of those laws and not having any enforcement on that, right? Try driving to work where nobody obeys traffic lights. Nobody obeys turn lanes, which side of the road they should be on, if they should be on the sidewalk or not. Big rigs in the center of the road going around traffic, monster trucks, you name it. Like, that's chaos, all right? Like, the little blue lights in the back of your windshield, like, that's not a good day, but... The, the alternative to that is even worse. Like there's boundaries in life and they're to keep us safe. It's not because God's a no fun, unloving, 
party pooper God. It's because God loves you and he's trying to give you good things. Sadly, interestingly enough, there's a tree of life in that garden. And it seems from, based on the edge of the chapter, the reason God closes the Garden of Eden is because man might eat of that tree and live forever. Think about that. There's a tree of eternal life. And they chose the tree of sin. Is that a little like us sometimes? (laughs) Tree of eternal life, God's grace and mercy. And here's sinful indulgence, and it's like, uh, okay, whoa. (laughs) It's madness. It's madness. The fourth point I'm going to make is that through sin, we've come to live life in a way that's distorted a sense of ourself. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Revelation 3.17 says, Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and need nothing, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. And these verses hint at the fact that when we take pleasure in the things that we have and too much pleasure in the creation that God's made, we're actually blinded to our own spiritual poverty. Yet despite all that, there is a God who wants to reach out to his people and does so time and time and time and time again. The New Testament talks about the about it like this in Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Therefore, one man trespassed for the condemnation of all men. So, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, we were made sinners. By one man's obedience, we will ma- be made righteous. Despite of all that went on in the garden and despite all that goes on in our life right now, there's a hope that God wants to tell us about, and that hope is Jesus. The story of the creation and of the universe, of your life's loves and passions, your marriage, your church, here's the good news. All of that story is part of his great story. You're not the center of the story. And where you're going to wind up is based on, going to be based on whose story you want to fall into. 1 Corinthians 15.21 reinforces that and says, For as by a man came death, by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. In, it is in Christ that we're going to find life again. See, this story, I feel, helps orient our minds around the gospel. Now, let's define what that is. The word we defined as gospel is transliterated as gospel is a Greek word that means the good news. And just to be clear, there's good news because there's bad circumstances, okay? Living a, when you come to find your hope in Jesus you're going to be able to walk away from those bad circumstances and find freedom in him. 
See, trying to live that self-centered life is a constraint. You're constrained by your own interests and and abilities. You're constrained by the time and the day, and you're constrained by your sense of vision. You're constrained by the six inches between your ears. Jesus has come to set us free from all that. I'm going to give us, I know we're running out of time, I'm going to give us three points on the way back. Three verses if you guys got a pen and want to write them down. The first one is out of 1 Corinthians, verse 10, 31 through 33. The first point on the way back is how you rediscover God. Listen to this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all in the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greek or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they might be saved. Be imitators of me as I am imitators of Christ. Rediscover Jesus as the focal point of your faith. Rediscover Jesus as the center of your life. Rediscover Jesus in those areas where he feels like he's intruding on you. The next verse, Mark 2, 22 through 23, and the second point, open to his new work. No one puts new wines in old wineskins. If he does, the wineskins will burst, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. In this season of transition, in this season of redevelopment in this church, in this season of looking forward, with the heart of being new wineskins, open up to what God is doing. There will definitely be a corporate or community aspect to that, but it starts with individuals. It starts with God recultivating your heart in areas he might have seeded long ago, or that he's just waiting to get into. And my third point in moving forward, say no, just say no to fig leaves. John 15, verse 4, Abide in me as I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. It's kind of a play on words, but Jesus calls us to be vines and not fig leaves, right? Jesus calls us to be grafted into him, not standing at a distance from him with a veil on. For those of you guys who are small group leaders, I'll email you those verses so you can do them this week. I'm going to close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day, for your word for your message that that you wrote out so many thousands of years ago, O Lord, that still speaks truth to us today. God, I ask that you opened our mind and our hearts to rediscover Scripture and what it means to our life, that you start to open our community to this new work that you're doing. And Lord, we can find a whole new sense of intimacy with you in our church family, in our interpersonal lives, and in our community. Lord, we ask your Spirit to empower us 
to call us back to you in areas that we, we may be wayward. And Lord, teach us to love you ever the more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for checking out the podcast today. We hope you enjoyed it. For more information, you can visit alliancebible.church.